Koitearapuru Sounds. Inga reo, inga mana, rangatirama, tina koto katoa. You're with the podcast Scoring It Her Way for Sounds Centre for New Zealand Music, Toi Te Arapuru, Korebika Blandalaho. I've pretty much always resisted separating out women composers as a group because my inclination is to say that every composer is different and their work will speak for itself. But in order for that to happen, that work has to be heard and we have a really long history of silencing women's voices in Western music. And it's easy to assume that now it's suddenly okay and that's a tempting thing to assume because I can go to concerts and I can hear successful New Zealand women composers' works being performed. But to avoid making the same mistakes as in the past, I think it's really important not to assume. We actually need to ask some composers questions about what the environment is like in New Zealand now. So I've got together a group of four New Zealand women composers with different experiences and backgrounds. Eve de Castro-Robinson, Mary Boynton, Claire Cowan and Alara McIndoe. And we're going to have a chat. If it sounds like we're not all in the same room, it's because we're not. It's a video call. I think it's pretty much impossible <laughs> to get everyone in the same room at the moment. Um, but I'll just start by getting each of you to introduce yourselves. Kia ora koutou. Eve Castro-Robinson, I'm a sort of late middle-aged, in, in fact I turned 65 a couple of days ago, which puts me in a slightly different um, age bracket, and I've been in this sort of creative composing world for 40 years, um, and in terms of defining myself, I'm this kind of um, Pākehā-educated, late middle-aged, privileged sort of woman, mother, sound botherer, left-wing bipolar Scorpio who strides around the place um, and really as I get older I have more and more difficulty defining myself as anything but other people seem to see me as a composer so that'll do for now. I'm not particularly happy being called a woman composer. <laughs> I don't think it occurs to any of us as women composers, that we are particularly specially that, although I'm only talking for myself. Um, I, I've always just forged on in my own way, and I'd rather just be a composer or, or a creative person. Tēnā koutou, ko mire tokarahi pointina hau, no te taira whiti, ko te atanga pāti, ko ngati o neone, ko tūhoi hoki o kuiwi, I am the director Ngātoi Māori for Tafiri, which is an umbrella group for different art platforms like the Aotearoa New Zealand Festival of the Arts and the Wellington Jazz Festival and other things we might like to make. Uh, I first came into this space with um, learning Gillian Whitehead's work, Awaheria, 
And that's when I assisted Eve de Castro Robinson at a women's composing festival <laughs> in the 90s. And we had that at the Wellington Town Hall and I was just studying opera at that, at that time. In terms of my own composition, I really have just been in the area of writing lyrics. But now I have been asked to compose a waiata. And so that's a new challenge for me, is to bring Darangi with the kupu. Um, Kia everyone. I am Claire Cowan, and I am a composer mainly in a collaborative sense. I write soundtracks. I love working with other people from different musical backgrounds. I have a, a band, which is sort of on an extended hiatus at the moment, but it's usually a large kind of unwieldy group of musicians from different backgrounds playing covers that are reimagined of some of my favourite music from all different genres. I uh, started studying uh, instruments when I was young and then I studied composition with Eve and uh, John Elmsley at, at Auckland University. And then after that I sought out um, collaborations with other creative practitioners like filmmakers just anything and everything that was diverse to keep me entertained and making music. Kia ora koutou, um, my name's Alara. I'm from Otipoti, Dunedin. I grew up and studied there at the University of Otago, learning from Anthony Ritchie and Peter Adams. I did a bit of performance and composition. Uh, now I live in Wellington. I work as a lawyer and do as much music and composition as I can. And I think these conversations about the Aotearoa composition community and what it's like to be a composer and what it's like to be a composer who's not a man um, are really important conversations to be having and really reflecting on these ideas of, I suppose, what, what we expect a composer to look like and sound like and behave like and, and what our experiences are within that community. I know that for Claire, at least you had at least one woman teacher, whereas Alara, I think you had men. Do you think that made a difference to you? I had male teachers who were really aware of the issues that exist in the lack of diversity in composition circles or the composition community in New Zealand. So I always felt supported and and empowered by my teachers. But I think it was really obvious that, I mean, my first year at university, there were two women in my class of, I don't know, 20, 25 students. And both of us remained in the program. So I think that that does say something about how um, supported we felt. But the fact is that there were only two students who weren't male in that class to start with. And um, perhaps that does have something to do with seeing role models, but not just at an institution, university level, but I suppose in the outreach that happens at that um, early education stage as well. Eve, what has your experience been over your career teaching? Did you find that there were equal numbers of men and women? I think a couple of years ago, I've, I was asked by a couple of different places to do a tally, and luckily I had on in the books, as it were, um, numbers. 
and over the past eight years or so, the numbers are about a third female to male consistently. I mean, look, women have been composing music forever, but it's how we hear about them or how they're made prominent, you know, the, the, the Clara Schumann question. So uh, compared with Lara's experience in Auckland, I think we probably had bigger cohorts. And so when I went through back in the 80s, I think there were plenty of us. And I didn't really even notice uh, that I was a, a female. I had Dorothy Carr and, and um, Glenda Keem and Leonie and people like that who've kept composing. So uh, uh, that same ratio, I think, has probably kept going. It's, it's what those women do with that or what happens to them that's the key thing because women are all out there being creative, as we know. And do you have a kind of anecdotal experience of how many people that you teach would go on to work as composers? I think you probably stay in touch with quite a few of them. Yes, I do. Um, very few, very few. And the ones, the people like Claire is a shining example. And, you know, Juliet Palmer, who was more a sort of semi-contemporary of mine, um, Celeste Oram. Uh, more recently, um, uh, uh, Linda Dallimore, this kind of person. Um, and I think those people, like Claire, it was very clear early on that they had the requisite inner resources, obviously talent, because you have to more or less have talent to get into a school of music, a, a drive and a, a energy and drive and, and a bit of confidence. And you don't really have to teach them much. They, they keep going. All the good ones, you don't really have to do much apart from just uh, guide them along. I think I've heard you in an interview before say, you know, you're not even sure how you teach composition, so that's kind of in line with that comment, I guess. But none of us know that. But men may look as though they know how to better, as they do in a lot of um, areas, uh, you know, in the workplace at university. It's, it's famously men will always go for a promotion slightly before they're ready, and women will always hang back. It's a well-known fact, and I think the same applies to most women composition students. So, Claire, since Eve was referencing you coming through and her experience teaching you, what what was that like for you? Well, when I um, first started university, I was really pleased to have a woman lecturer and Eve was a breath of fresh air. <laughs> I guess she was the first uh, woman composer that I'd met. Um, I also had Glenda Keem for Harmony and Leonie Holmes as a tutor as well. So there was not just Eve. Um, and I also love my male tutors and lecturers. So I was just happy to be amongst like-minded people and, you know, exploring that whole world of composition. Did you always know you were going to keep going? Yeah. I think um, <laughs> I do remember, maybe it was that your first lecture, Eve, or maybe it was my second year that I actually had you, um, but we are in a small room with a lot of composers and you, you said, uh, put your hand up if you want to be a composer 
as a career choice. And a lot of people did. But then, you know, by the third year, the fourth year, that had whittled down to three people. Um, and of the three people who graduated in my year, I never heard from the other two again. I think, I think a lot of people who study composition at uni never expect to make it a career because it's just something that they're passionate about, but they don't want to monetize. They don't want to make it something that they earn money from because that, that's not the pleasure part of it for them. Um, for me, I kind of like the challenge of being able to write music for money and all the other psychological things that go with that, you know, the um, networking with other people, um, trying to write music for somebody who doesn't know about music, um, creating soundtracks for films and and uh, stories that um, need to be reflected in the music and how that works alongside other people's artworks. So that's, I mean, I also like writing music for myself, but now I find it harder and harder each time I'm giving a, given a commission and I have no boundaries and no rules. <laughs> um, and somebody just says, we're going to pay you this much. You just write us a piece of music. I'll go, oh, I don't know where to begin. Um, so I've always liked that collaborative approach and working with other people. And I guess that that marries up well with earning a living from it. So it's much harder to come by a full-time income from just commissions from timbre ensembles or orchestras or whatever. Mary... I we've been talking a little bit about kind of academia I guess so far but what I'm one of the things I'm interested in knowing from you is you spent quite a lot of your career as an arts festival director and especially bringing forward other Maori artists and I wondered if you could give us an impression of what um, what it's like for women who write music in Te Ao Māori? Uh, well, traditionally, women, wahine Māori, were the composers of our culture. So, you know, times have changed and there's a good mixture of wahine and tāne composing now. But really it was kind of the realm of wahine to compose waiata ngiri, waiata ngi, Rotiatia, it was a realm of wahine because it's, that's the seat of emotion. But for Māori, composing has kind of existed more in the kapanaka space, Māori show bands, popular music. So in terms of contemporary classical music, that's not really a space that Māori have occupied um, in, in a big way. So, you know, the years that I've been involved, it's been kind of quite a lonely space because, you know, I was trained in, in classical music with at uh, the Conservatorium of Music here in Wellington and always had a passion for, for te reo Māori and creating platforms for that. So just naturally kind of, fell into that space of collaborating with, with other composers like Arifa to uh, to bring Te Reo Māori and, and all of our tikanga and our kawa into that space. Uh, but I think that we're going to see a kind of major breakthrough in the next 10 years. 
uh, in terms of Māori composing. You see the work that um, Hene Wehi Mohi is doing with contemporary pop, pop music and getting artists of today to translate a lot of their waiata into te reo Māori. Uh, in terms of traditional Māori composition, we're seeing a lot of young Māori coming through the Kurukaupapa and Kohanga Reo, very, very well equipped in terms of writing in te reo Māori and composing in, in a traditional Māori style. Yeah, I'm very confident of the future for composition in te reo Māori. It just may not be through a Pākehā paradigm so much. Um, I want to ask you about that yourself because I know you collaborated with Gareth Farr on Ngahihi o Matariki um, earlier this year with the NZSO and you took very traditional a very traditional kind of Māori sound onto a stage with a Western orchestra. And I wondered what that was like for you. Uh, it was tricky. It was tricky. You know, I'm not scared of performing with um, orchestras. No, actually, I lie. It's scary. <laughs> it's a big tiny fart. But, you know, um, yeah, it took... A long, long, long time for me to find my comfort in composing within that, that space. And uh, I really just had to dig down into, into a Māori space. So Ariana Tikau and I spent quite a long time guided by Kali uh, Miriari to... We'd had a lot of wānanga and, you know, first... First and foremost were the kupu, and that defined what the kaupapa was going to be, what, what the story was. So it took a long time to find the narrative and the meaning. And from there, once we got the words down, got the story down, the narrative down, the melody came. And uh, I spent time just listening to Motiatia and trying to find the right voice or the right real. Lara, um, it was a few days after that concert um, with Mary, I think, uh, you had your work, um, Ephemeral Bounds, performed by the National Youth Orchestra and NZSO members. I was just wondering what your experience was like in putting together that work with the orchestra. I was so fortunate to have um, that opportunity to work with um, the National Youth Orchestra, I think um, there's something about working with your peers um, that is really special and and having that collaboration and 
the rehearsal process of hearing it come to life and hearing them put their um, their own interpretation and, and creativity um, to the work is really special. And so I, I, I found that a fantastic opportunity. And I think perhaps the, the one of the most um, valuable opportunities um, within that residency was working with Selena Fisher as my mentor, a composer that I really admire and love the work of and I suppose just the the conversations we could have about um, being a woman in composition and working with an orchestra and and the politics and negotiation. And tell me, tell me more. What what kind of things did you discuss? Um, I mean, I, I suppose the nature of working with this piece of history, this massive institution that is the orchestra, um, is. A fantastic experience, but it's also caught up with this whole history of hierarchy and um, colonialism and tradition, um, and not just breaking from that, but challenging that, and at the same time preserving some aspects of that is, um, or, or at least of of that uh, that art form and and the amazing works that stem from the orchestra. Um, yeah, balancing that with what it, what goals we might have as composers, trying to be a part of a uniquely Aotearoa music community, um, and how we go about that and working with with institutions. Does anyone else, like maybe Eve or Claire, have an experience um, related to working with an orchestra that you'd that kind of feeds into that idea? Because I think it could be very fraught. Like I know some of those players are really um, hesitant to try new things, and they're like, "No, nope, just want to play Mahler." Have you felt that resistance? Well, well, particularly way back, you know, forty years ago, whatever it was. Um, I had an opportunity to work with the NZSO quite early on, and boy, I mean, I don't think it changes. They're still forbidding because they're a group and they're a hierarchical group, and they're all splayed across the stage, looking neutral because it's they're at work. They're at work, and you come into their office, and there's usually a male conductor, and 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 so it's sort of things are stacked up against you from the beginning. That's how I felt as a young person. And also as a composer, because you come in there and they're, they're waiting. And I remember one occasion where I had to get up on the podium and talk about the piece and, and explain it in advance. And I blanked, I just blanked. That's a bit unusual for me. 
because they were all looking at me expectantly and I was suddenly put in a subservient position. It took me years to realise that actually they were bloody lucky to have the space from me. And so, Alara, when I hear you say, I was incredibly lucky, I remember my, my saying that same phrase all those decades ago in a listener interview. I feel incredibly, and I'm not, that's not mimicking, I feel incredibly lucky to have this opportunity. They're lucky to have your piece. <laughs> um, and not many males are heard to say, I feel incredibly lucky. So I think we're all, all of us, Wahine, perhaps are, are guilty of that kind of over-modesty. Anyway, this is, this is a, a slightly different issue, but that facing the orchestra, um, uh, and I do remember a certain rhythm that I'd written in the brass players that was sort of muttering amongst the brass players, which is a common occurrence. And, and, and because they've got the... It's a group ethic. They, because they're sitting in a collective, they can say whatever they like. You know, so it's, it's that kind of power power imbalance and you're up there saying no I really want it to go ba 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 da 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 um, it's got easier over the years but Claire I mean you'll have lots of experiences yeah well I mean I've been working with orchestras since I was I don't know 18 I think was the first time I got a piece played and from that experience to how I work with an orchestra now has changed quite a bit. I guess just growing up and being more sure of myself and knowing the etiquette more. But it's always been, I think I've had a work conducted by a woman conductor once. That was Tiani. She was great. Um, and the conductors I've worked with have also been awesome, all of the men conductors. But um, I guess they're the, they're the one person who should have your back if an orchestra member takes issue with the way that you've notated something or um, a technique that you've asked them to do that's not very convenient or, you know, stuff like that. And so I felt, I guess, maybe it's just how I am in any situation where I'm asking people to do things. I ha have a sort of learned way of trying to make friends with everybody, trying to make everybody like me so that when I ask them to do things, they're a little bit more than what they're usually expected to do or stuff like that, that, you know, I have a relationship with more of these players now than when I did back then. I was just an unknown student composer. Um, but, and, and that sort of rapport means that they want to do good for you and they're looking forward to playing your next piece and, and stuff like that. And I think back when I... Uh, entered a competition. That was how I got my first piece, piece played, was a competition. Um, and I think they selected finalists and you got a reading. And then um, I remember some of the guys who, who were also in the competition were super confident straight from the bat. Uh, they, they, they'd, they'd tell the conductor straight away, the harp's out of time. You know? And I was just like, <laughs> you can't say that. You have to be so like, you know, because performers are so um, self-conscious and they they don't want to be singled out. You know, it's just, I mean, it's there's a whole lot of social stuff that goes with being a composer, having your work played, channels that you have to do through the conductor. 
at break times having a surreptitious word to, you know, just a little sneaky aside, hey, you know that little violin solo? I think you're actually, that might be just one semitone. Oh, you've missed that sharp, you know, like stuff like that. You have to, that's how my approach is to it. And I have a good working relationship with lots of people in lots of the orchestras. And I feel that that's, that's the way that I've been able to build a career out of it. Make friends and then the friends will work for you and want to do good by you. Um, and same with orchestra management. You have to be polite and... Um, persistent and I think confidence for me has come with um, growing up and realizing that uh, that the music that I write is useful to people and people like it um, and all that stuff that can only really come with years of trial and error and learning and that will go on for the rest of my career I'm sure. A lot of your work is in theatrical productions and also in film. And I wonder, like those are also traditionally male areas and how has it been working in those areas? I started off working in theatre mainly with like physical theatre, um, soundtracks for um, small contemporary dance things and then I started working with Red Leap Theatre Company. That's all female run um, and the other dance productions were female choreographers. Uh, the first male choreographer I worked with was Lachlan Pryor who I went on to write a ballet with the RNZB. Um, fantastic experience working with Lachlan because he and I are, are good friends. Um, in the TV world I did commercials, um, I did uh, telemovies, I did short films, and mostly male directors, but some females. Um, and I think I never really, I don't think I've ever lost a job or not been asked to do a job because I'm a woman, but I feel like I've probably got jobs because I'm a woman. So I, I don't know if that makes me an anomaly, but I feel like women want to work with other women and I've been brought into projects uh, I feel as a token woman <laughs> um, and whether that makes everybody happy on a superficial level fine I got the gig but I do feel a bit weird about it you know um, it should be about the music and I know it's a marketing point for some people um, like with the RNZB I was the first female composer to write a ballet for the, a, a, a full-length ballet, um, which is, I mean, weird that in this day and age that hasn't happened before. Um, and I know that it happens in the choreography world as well. There's a lot more male ballet choreographers than there are females. Um, well, perhaps there's a lot more who are given more opportunities than female choreographers, which the RNZB is trying to address as well. Um, but. I don't think I got brought onto that project because I was a woman. It's just because I knew Lachlan and had a relationship with him and we worked well together.
I spoke to Elizabeth Kerr, who set up composing women's festivals in the 90s, which I think um, both Eve and Medi, you were involved with. I basically just wanted to know what what the environment was like at the time for women and what were the drivers for her setting up those festivals. And what she said was that women just weren't getting their works performed, they weren't getting commissions, they weren't getting university jobs. The organisers of those festivals spoke to heaps of women around the country um, from all different backgrounds, all different styles of music. And there was a general lack of confidence among them. And, and I think all of you have referenced um, in some way that, you know, that confidence that men have and that women perhaps don't have. But it sounded to me like it was, from what Elizabeth said, it was particularly bad at that time. And they would say things like, I'm not a composer, I'm just a songwriter. And there was this real feeling that composers were dead white men um, and that as a as a living woman, you you couldn't be one. I wonder, first of all, whether Eve and Mary, you think that that is a accurate depiction of what it was like in the 90s? And then I want to know whether there's any kind of relevance to now or whether that world has disappeared. Yes, that, that, that there was a real sort of um, surging feeling of sorority around that time with people like Elizabeth and, and Diana Marsh who, who set up those fantastic festivals. And it was a thrill, that, that first one in particular, because, partly because of the blend of people. I remember having a photo taken on the steps of the um, Civic Centre down in Wellington and just seeing the mixture of Jenny McLeod, who, who'd been asked to stub out her cigarette and, and, that, and that kind of thing, and Gillian and, and me and Mary and Dorothy Buchanan, but people like um, uh, Janet Roddick and the Brainchilds. And, and it was diverse and it was a thrill because we were all brought together. Then there was this whole festival full of stuff I remember at the time, no male would dare say something like, oh, well, I would have liked to have something because there was cutting down of, I remember a specific case, a, a nameless woman said, you, we've had decades of your festivals. Uh, and I felt sorry for that male because he hadn't done anything wrong. He was trying to just be a composer like the rest of us. So we had the first one, second one, third one. And I think by the time we'd had the third one, there was a feeling that the point had been made, the numbers had been risen, the, the singer-songwriters had all come on board and thought, well, yeah, I'm a composer too, all that. Um, and, and we didn't really need any more at the moment. Of course, as we know, the numbers, the ratio of, of male-female works being played isn't yet equal, but there are a hell of a lot more people redressing that, you know, orchestras, chamber groups, certain ones who've, who've um, committed to the um, equal programming, so it has changed. But I just remember, remember being in the, the Wellington Town Hall and just having all these wahine there and, you know, just young and naive and not really clocking what that meant. 
I just took it for given, you know. Yeah, it could be timely to have another woman's composing festival. And as Wahine, we, we, we have to do that. We have to create our own sacred spaces. A lot of Māori women do that in terms of their arts with weaving. It's not, there's, no, there's nothing wrong with having creating a woman's space, a sacred space for creating. You know, we tend to kind of try and make things nice, nice, coconut nice for everyone else. And that takes a lot of energy. Uh, you know, should we be like Tani and just, you know, be very self-confident and um, make a move before you're even ready? But that's not what women need. Women feel like we need to have everything, all our ducks in line before we make our move. And um, perhaps that's because we've been so marginalised in a Western context that we feel that we're not of, of equal status. But I think with the rangatahi that are coming through now, there's definitely no gender barrier. In fact, it's kind of fluid, which I find very exciting. It's a new breed of humanity. Where Tane and Wahine are they're embracing both sides of themselves. Te ira wahine, te ira tane. And it's a new world that's coming with our, with our mokopuna, with our grandchildren. And I hope I'm around to see that. I know you wrote a violin concerto called Stark, which was based on the dancer Frida Stark. And I understand you're wanting to work on a ballet or are currently working on a ballet about her story. And is that political for you, telling her story? Um, I think, yes, I think her story um, is interesting from many angles. Um, Her queerness being one of them, but also the examination of the social attitudes of the time towards um, lesbians um, in the 1930s and 40s in New Zealand and how all that relates, the sort of interconnectedness of um, that in the Western art music world and the orchestra, which is part of the story. Her lover was the... uh, um, wife of the conductor of basically the APO at the time um, and who was uh, accused of her murder. So it's a great story. And I, I try and seek out, when, I've, when I'm given commissions, which is not that often because I'm always working collaboratively, um, I try and seek out queer narratives for them to, to make it easier for me to write the story and for me to be passionate about telling the story through music and to give people a way into the music. I like, it's just how I like to work with this sort of story or a very, very strong theme. 
yeah, so that is something I try and, and do with my music is put queerness on a on a stage um, in places where it doesn't normally exist in the sort of um, orchestral world, in the ballet world, especially female and female um, love stories have never been on a ballet stage internationally, not in a full-length production anyway, so I think Stark will be the first in the world of its kind, in a, in a professional ballet company, in a national ballet company, um, has been done in some um, more um, amateur groups. What I would like to do is just ask all of you whether we still need to have these like discussions on women or gender more widely in music, and can you foresee a time where we no longer need to have those discussions. I ho- I live in hope. That's all I can say. And I I, I personally would love more um, women or non-binary composers to get in touch with me and say, how can I learn from you? How can I help you? Um, and I would love that. It doesn't really happen. Um, and I wish it would because I could do with the help. And I, I would love to raise up some 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 new voices. Um, so, yeah, live in hope. These discussions about what it's like as women and non-binary composers are still important to have. And I think it's also important that those discussions are reaching out to the further regions um, as someone who... who comes from Dunedin, as, as you mentioned, um, was from a largely male faculty, looking up the chain at, for example, just the residency at my own university hasn't been held by women since 2005. So, so looking up at, these, at the possible futures for um, careers in composition, I, I think these discussions still need to be had and, and reaching out to those regions. And I think as long as there's a gender pay gap and disproportionate amounts of emotional labour being done by women, these conversations will be relevant in music as well because naturally those broader social gender issues um, seep into music as well and will always be relevant. I think it's important to have a woman's space and to have women's voices, you know, and I think it will always be that way, you know. In, in indigenous societies, there was always a woman's space and a man's space. We need to to offer each other and support each other. Um, so if we can find opportunities to do that, great. But it doesn't it doesn't define you. The 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 sense of the women's space, to me personally and culturally, isn't a thing. It isn't a thing. Uh, but I can objectively see what a wonderful and important construct that might be, but I've never had it. I guess for me, there's also, I've always loved a male energy. I've never wanted to put that down unless it's misplaced. Uh, there's a cliche view, which I've been guilty on this forum of, of putting forward, which is that they are all confident and all pushy, but that is not the case. So being in a mixed uh, creative community is crucial for me. Uh, 
Having said that, working with Mere on a piece called Ho, um, I was reflecting on that before, and there was something about uh, Mere's very femaleness that was essential to that particular work. Alara McIndoe, Eve de Castro Robinson, Medi Boynton, and Claire Cowan, four New Zealand composers discussing what it's like being a woman in composition. It seems that we're broadly in agreement that keeping a conversation going about gender and composition is important, even if, like Eve, a composer doesn't particularly want to identify as a woman composer or work especially in that space. As Alara said, until we see true gender equality in wider society, we can be sure that there's an impact of gender imbalance in composition. And while reflecting that wahine Māori create a sacred space for creativity, Mary spoke about rangatahi who have a gender identity that's not male or female, like non-binary. Does that also have an impact on your experience in composition? Finally, Claire offered some practical support. She asked women and non-binary composers who would like to help her with her work to get in touch. This podcast was presented and produced for Sound Centre for New Zealand Music, Toi Te Arapuaru, by me, Rebecca Blundell, and Phil Brownlee as our sound engineer. Thank you for listening. Once again, my guests were Eve de Castro Robinson, Claire Cowan, Mary Boynton, and Alara McIndoe. We heard extracts from Claire Cowan's Ultraviolet, played by Amalia Hall, Callum Hall, and Sarah Watkins. Gareth Farr's Ngahihi o Matariki featuring Mary Boynton, played by the New Zealand Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Gemma New, who also conducted Alara McIndoe's Ephemeral Bounds, performed by the NZSO National Youth Orchestra. Claire Cowan's Killing the Witch from Hansel and Gretel, performed by the NZSO under Hamish McKeach, and Eve de Castro Robinson's These Arms to Hold You, featuring the Lyrica Choir of Kelvin School, the NZSO, and Kenneth Young. Lastly, we heard Mary Boynton on Ho, another piece by Eve de Castro Robinson. To hear more about the composers and their works, and for more information about the music of Aotearoa New Zealand, go to the Sounds website, sounds.org.nz, that's S-O-U-N-Z. Nō reira, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa. Toi te Sounds.